0: Amen. Thank you all. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Scott. And good job singing this morning. Boy, I was down, right down here on the front row. Yeah, give your, um, that was beautiful. And uh, I say that too because uh, I'm going to pound away at some things in a few moments. And uh, at the end, the response is going to be praise Jesus. Praise Jesus, so uh, I didn't plan to say this, but at the end of the message, I want you to stand, and I want you to praise Jesus uh, as you were just doing. Hey, welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross. Uh, so glad that you're here, that you're taking the time this morning to gather with the body of Christ and to and to worship and to be recalibrated in your mind and your heart. So, so glad you're here, guests, especially glad that, glad that you are here uh, as well. At the beginning of the year, which, believe it or not, uh, is about four months ago now, uh, we laid out, as a church family, 17 goals for 2017. Isn't that cute? 17 and, and uh, 2017. And you, uh, these are on our, our CC mobile app. These are on our website. You might have thought, well, they had to get 17, so there's probably definitely a few that are fluff in there uh, but guess what there's there's none that are fluff we're, we're, there's actually a few that aren't on here there's secret goals but uh, I just want to uh, bring this to your attention a couple of the goals in here uh, for 2017 we've been working hard and I by we I mean Doug Bartek uh, has been working hard to uh, sell some land, some extra land that we have. We'll have an update about that next week as going, there's progress there. Also, goal number five is to hire a part-time junior high minister. And we've been interviewing uh, recently, and we'll have another interview this week. So I just want to ask your prayer as we continue to move forward uh, in that. Uh, if you haven't noticed it, uh, there's a lot of kids in this area. Uh, there's a lot of kids in my house now. Uh, So uh, we want to continue to invest in the next generation, not the future of the church, but the church now. Um, So I want you to pray for those things. Again, uh, thanks for being here. And uh, open up your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Romans 3. If you're a guest this morning, uh, by way of introduction, we have three kids at my house. Three uh, wonderful kids: a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and now an eight-month-old little guy. Um, wonderful, wonderful kids. Nearly perfect when they're sleeping. Um, the other times, it's a bit of a challenge. But we we have three kids. Uh, love them to death. Elizabeth, actually, my wife, sent me on Friday a video of our youngest, our little eight-month-old, and I don't know, some of you have been there, done that, Uh, some of you are doing that with us, but uh, she sent me this cute little one-minute video of Truett, just, he's he's eight months old, and he's now in that jabbering phase, right, so just blabbering, spitting, just trying to talk, and it is so cute, I, I posted it on my Facebook page, uh, don't go there now, but friend me later. Look, it's it's, uh, it, it's so cute. He's just jabbering and jabbering for like 60 seconds. It's, it's, it's awesome. It just melts your heart. Uh, I don't know about you, though, but uh, our observation in our house is, you know, it, that that time from about six months to 18 months, two years when they're learning to talk is just so cute, and you start to see their personality more and more. But we've made an observation, and maybe you've made it in your house too, uh, but as they get on into two, three, four, five, and on up, the the speaking begins to be much less cute. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Has that been your observation? I see some smiles and some elbows to kids over on this side. Uh, that's true, isn't it? Uh, right now it's cute, uh, but it gets uh, to be less cute with time. And just a few examples. Uh, recently, I, uh, one example was I said... Campbell, you guys are supposed to be playing in your room alone. To which she replied, yeah, but if we're in the plague room and we're quiet and we're not talking to each other and we're fighting, then that's okay. <laughs> no. Uh, also recently, uh, to the seven-year-old, son, we need to talk. Uh, the way you treated uh, your friends, playing foursquare, uh, not cool. You, you hurt their feelings. Well, they started it, and then... One. Most recently, within the last 24 hours, son, when we get home, there's going to be a consequence, okay? There's going to be a consequence. To which his reply was, well, you know what? I don't even want to live with you anymore. <laughs> to which I replied, well, that can be arranged. <laughs> to which grandma and grandpa said, no way. <laughs> Where do you suppose they get that? Uh, yeah, mom, that's right. Uh, just kidding. Uh, in fact, my grandma Bishop, who uh, is now with Jesus, my grandma Bishop used to love to tell this story about when I, when I was about five years old, I was staying a few days in, in Enid, Oklahoma with my grandparents, and I got in some trouble and, and was reprimanded, spanked, whatever, um, whipped with a stick, whatever they did back then, uh, And I, to which I replied to my grandma, well, you just wait. When my mommy gets here, she's going to whip your bottom. So uh, where do they get that? Um, as we come to Romans chapter 3, believe it or not, as Paul's letter to the Romans, as we come to Romans chapter 3 this morning, as he gets to verses 19 and 20, Paul's point to us is simply this Shut your mouth. <laughs> That's his point. I mean, he's, he, he takes, and we'll do a little review here in a second, three chapters to show us, all of us, religious, irreligious, grew up in the church, never stepped foot in a church to to show all of us you're guilty. Now, just be quiet. Just stop making excuses, stop talking back, and just shut your mouth and know you're guilty. So that's the title of the message this morning, Every Mouth Shut. I really want to entitle it, Shut Yo Mouth. Uh, So if you want to call it that, you can. Uh, Sam Perry uh, is going to read the passage for us and then pray for our time in the Word. But I'd like to ask all of us, as we've done the last few weeks, to stand in honor and respect of God's Word. I would love, this won't be on the screen, but I would love you to pull out your device, uh, an old-fashioned Bible with paper if you have it, and follow along as Sam reads the uh, passage to us here in Romans. Sam?
1: And I'll be reading Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us I speak in a human way by no means for then how could God judge the world but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory why am I still being condemned as a sinner and why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, and as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin would you bow with me father we give you all praise and honor this morning because there is no name under heaven and earth that is worthy of praise and honor like yours lord we recognize that Our sinful nature does separate us from you and that no action and no deed on our behalf will save us or reconcile us to you but God we are thankful and we are grateful that you are true to your promises and your faithfulness to us through the blood of your son Jesus Christ to provide us our salvation Lord just fill our hearts and minds with this message as we go through the coming days in your son's name Amen
0: Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Sam. So we're going to do a little bit of review here in just a moment. But here's, if, if I lose you here in a few minutes, if you doze off, okay, if you start surfing the web, uh, don't do that. But here's the main point, okay? Here's, here's the tweet, if you like. Here's the main point from today. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is guilty. But through Jesus, grace is available to everyone. Okay, that's the main point today. To back up and review a little bit, there uh, is this wonderful outline that one Bible teacher named Warren Weersby has, has given us. This is on our resource pages, but just by way of review, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 3, basically, Paul has been talking about sin, You see, uh, Wearsby's little outline here is so easy to remember. We'll come back to this as we walk through the book of Romans more. But sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. Okay, that's the the main outline of the book. It starts with an introduction, and then it quickly goes in to sin. Uh, At the beginning, in the introduction, Paul says, hey, I've got some good news. Gospel, good news, and the good news is, is this. I'm not ashamed of the good news, for the good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation, the good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the good news. But then Paul, in verse 18 of chapter 1, turns the corner and begins to talk about sin. He begins to give us the bad news. So that's what we've been talking about for uh, the last few weeks here. And each week, in paragraph after paragraph, uh, Paul is just... I mean, he is just leveling us, leveling the human race. So he talks in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, there he talks primarily about the, uh, the unrighteousness of the Gentile world. Verses 18 uh, through 32, he talks about sexual sin. He talks about perversion. He talks about gossip. He talks about murder. He talks about all the basically external obvious sins. And so uh, as you read through Romans chapter 1 and you're kind of a good moral person you're feeling pretty good about yourself but watch out because here comes Romans chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 2 he turns the corner and he starts uh, talking about not irreligious people immoral people but religious people and self-righteous people so if you look we have a little chart here of Romans 1 versus uh, Romans chapter 2 Romans 1 is about rebellion Uh, Romans 2 is about religion You can sin through unrighteousness. You can sin in Romans chapter 2 by self-righteousness. Romans chapter 1, he says you should know better because of creation, because of your conscience. In chapter 2, even more, you should know better, uh, Israel, Jewish people, because you have God's law. You you are his covenant people, so you should know better. And there's present judgment uh, indicated in chapter 1, and there's future judgment indicated in Romans chapter 2. There's all different ways to sin. You can sin by unrighteousness. You can sin by self-righteousness. As we get to chapter 3, his point here is just to bring it all home. This is his closing case, his closing remarks of his case, if you will. He's tying the bow on it. Chapter 3 says, all are under sin. We'll see that verse uh, verse 9 here in just a minute. And then next week, chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Case closed. Everyone is a sinner. There's various types of sin, but everyone is a sinner. And and I would bet, as we've gone through the series, I've said this before, I bet when you think of sin, the first thing that comes into your mind is Romans chapter one and those types of sin. Hey, it's the external things. It's it's murder, it's envy, it's it's slander, it's gossip, it's sexual sin, those kind of things. Most of us, when we think about sin, we put it sin, we define sin by Romans chapter one kind of stuff. But there's all different ways to sin, and we've seen that in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 also. So, next slide here, just the many faces of sin. You can sin by breaking the law, but you can also sin by not fulfilling the law, right? To break the law is to trespass. Uh, To not fulfill the law is to, hey, the law says you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing on that? You know, there's sins of commission and there's sins of omission. A lot of times we just think about the sins of, of, of commission, right? So trespass, you step over. Uh, but there's also a passive sin where you don't step out. Uh, to, to trespass is to do something against someone, but to not step out, to passively sin is to say you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, how you doing on that, right? Um, one is action, the other is attitude. You can do wrong and sin, or you can do right and sin. You can, you can help that person. You can walk that uh, elderly lady across the street with the motive of, I hope if someone sees this, or what a good guy I am, right? So you can, do, you can sin by doing wrong, but you can also sin by doing right. You can rebel via bad works, but you can also rebel via good works in kind of this self-righteous way that we've talked about. You can love wrong things, and you can love good things too much. Do you realize this? Our nature is so deceptive that we can take a good thing like family or like work and our career or even our health or fitness and things like that, and we can take that good thing and we can make it a God thing. We can turn it into this little idol that we worship. It's our family. It's a good thing. It's our job. It's, it's, it's something that we were created to do, but we can make that thing an ultimate thing. We're doing good, but that good thing that we're doing actually at its core and at its motive is not so good, is it? There's lots of different ways to sin. Selfishness through law-breaking, selfishness through law-keeping. Hey, I'm a good person. Therefore, God should love me. I should be in his good graces. He should give me what I ask for because I keep the law. That's ultimately selfishness. You're not keeping the law out of obedience or love for God. You're keeping the law to get something from God. There's a lot of different ways to sin. There's prideful rebellion, and there's also prideful religion. There's immorality, but there's also moralism. Moralism. Most, most people, I would say this. We live in, in Texas. We're in the, the United States of America. We're a Christian nation, whatever, okay? Most people, when you talk to them about Jesus, when, when you say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a church-going person, I have a relationship with Jesus, here's what the rest of the world who, who are non believers. here's what they hear. They hear, oh, You're asking me to become a good person. You're asking me to put on some type of moralism, to quit smoking, drinking, cussing, and and dating girls that do, right? Just this kind of external morality. They think you're asking them to adopt moralism. That's not Christianity. That's something different. Jesus was a moral person. Christians are to be moral people, but Christianity is not moralism. Moralism is not Christianity. So you can be the most upright person, the most church-going person, the most law-keeping person, and quite honestly, be just as separated from God as the pagan that you look down down at. There's lots of different ways to sin. You can sin by paganism. You can sin by religiosity. So here we come as he gives his closing remarks, Romans chapter 3. Okay, this is the end of the bad news. Are you glad we've spent about four weeks on sin? But this is why, because, and and this is Paul's reason because if you don't know the dire state that you are in, you will never appreciate the good news. If you do not know the depth of your sin, you will never appreciate the depth of God's grace. So, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, the passage kind of breaks down like this the first eight verses, we see the objections. The second uh, part of the section here, verses 9 through 18, we see the response, and then thirdly, we see the conclusion, okay? Objections, response, conclusion. Here we go, first of all, in the objections, okay? Uh, Paul is having this, uh, this debate, this diatribe with this person as he follows up on chapter two of this religious Jewish person. Who basically thinks, "Hey, because I I grew up a Jew, because I know the law of God, shouldn't I be exempt from God's judgment?" To which Paul has said in Romans chapter two, "No, not so fast." And so the objection that this objector raised, uh, we see here in, in verse one: "What then? What then? What advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision?" Well, you might think, "Well, Paul would say, well, there is no value." But verse two, he says, "No, there is value." Much, in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You, you have God's commands. You, God has revealed himself to you as his people, but that doesn't exempt you from his judgment. That actually gives you more responsibility, right? You have his law. To whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, what, verse verse uh, 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What's going on here? Basically, the, the objector here is saying, well, if, if we're unfaithful, but God, if we're unfaithful, but God is still faithful, doesn't that, excuse me, I'm getting confused myself. If God is unfaithful, if we're unfaithful to God, is God going to be unfaithful to us? Is he going to give up on his covenant that he made with us? And he says may it never be. Even though you're a liar, even though you're unfaithful, even though your people have been grossly unfaithful, God will keep his promises. And then the rest of the objection goes on to basically say, "Well, doesn't that make doesn't that make God look unrighteous? Doesn't that make him look like less" Uh, holy than he is if he just kind of, uh, uh, of, of ignores what's going on with the Jewish people? Verses uh, four or five and following. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? Basically this, hey, if, if we're unrighteous and God's still going to show his righteousness, then then why should he judge us? How can he judge us? Doesn't that make him unrighteous? Look uh, at verse 6, he goes on. Uh, By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So the, the objection goes, God, even though you're unrighteous, is still going to judge you. Even though you're, you keep the law, he's still going to judge you. Even if you keep the law better than the Gentiles who, who, who are, are pagans, you still break the law. And God, in his righteousness, in his justice, is, is still going to judge you. Verse uh, 8, the other objection says, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people are slanderously charging us with saying their, con- their condemnation is just. Basically, what went around is like, well, if you take Paul's idea, well, then the attitude just to be, well, just let go, you know, just do whatever you want, because God's going to be gracious, God's going to bless whom he wants to bless, so just do evil, and that will show God even more gracious. Do good, so that, do evil, so that God can show his goodness. And Paul says, no way. May it never be. The comparison might be uh, you've made a covenant with your spouse. You said, I, I, I'll be with you in sickness and in death. But you've, one person in a marriage has been unfaithful to the spouse. And that person who's, who's been unfaithful goes to the other person and says, but you promised to be with me in sickness and in health. Through, to, to death do us part. So therefore you have to forgive me. I'm going to keep cheating. I'm going to keep being unfaithful to you because you made this promise. You made this covenant, and that person that is that is trampling on the grace and the covenant is treating that that person uh, as as a standard rather than someone they love. If you truly love your spouse, you would never say, "I'm going to keep doing the evil that I want to do," because you've promised to forgive me. And that's what they were saying that the Jews were doing. Hey, I'm going to I'm going to keep. Let's let's just since God's You know, gracious, let's just keep doing evil because it's his job to forgive us. That's his job. He's God. He's got to forgive us. And Paul doesn't even answer the question. He just says, he doesn't even answer the objection. He just says, their condemnation is just. That's bogus. Grace and uh, having the covenant is not an excuse to do whatever you want. And sin all the more. that's not the point. May it never be.. Right. So with that objection, he moves on, and he gives the response. And in verses nine through uh, 18, we see uh, that Paul strings together these Old Testament quotes. There's uh, seven quotations here from the Old Testament. seven quotations. Some of them are from Isaiah. Uh, Some of them are from the Psalms. There's one from Ecclesiastes, I believe. And he basically is stringing all these Old Testament quotes together to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. It's like uh, a preacher. If I want to make a point, I make the point, and then I, I put verses after that to say, here's my justification for that, right? Well, Paul's been laying out this argument, guilty, 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 and now he goes to the Old Testament. These seven, seven, the perfect, the number of perfection, right? And he puts together these Old Testament quotations that are quite bleak, aren't they? to to show us how bad sin is. Don't just keep on doing evil that God's righteousness would be shown. Don't just trample on God's grace. This is how evil your sin is. This is how lost you are. So he describes in uh, verse nine, he says, "Uh, what then, are we Jews any better off Because we have circumcision, because we have the law of God, are we any better off? Are we exempt from the judgment of God? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Are we better off because we have this long history and tradition where God has chosen us as his people? Does that that exempt us and automatically, hey, we're his people, we go to heaven, all that? Are we better off? No, Jews and Gentiles all alike are under sin. And and look at the word picture there, under sin. It's that, that sin is this slave master over us and we are held prisoner by sin. We are under sin. We are under its condemnation. We are held by its power, whether you're a religious person or whether you're an irreligious person. Whether you grew up with all the tradition or you grew up in total rejection and rebellion against God. Everyone is under the slave of sin. And he strings these quotations together. And we see several things here uh, on verses 10 and following. But the first thing that we see is the universality, excuse me, universality, that's hard to say, universality of sin. Look at, the, look at uh, verses 9 and following there. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He's saying all are separated from God. All have rejected God. No, not one. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one seeks God. You might say, wait, no one seeks God. I know, I know a lot of people that are seeking God. I know a lot of seekers. What is what is Paul saying here? He's saying that even those who are seeking are seeking a God of their own making for their own self. That you, you your friends and our our family they may be seeking God, but they're not seeking the biblical God. They're not seeking the one true God. They may be seeking God to get something from God. Hey, I, God. I'm seeking you so you'll bless me. And that ultimately is a motive, not honoring God, but it's it's ultimately a motive that says this religion is for me to get something from God rather than for me to serve God. Do you see the difference? That no one seeks God. No, not one. The universality of sin. Now the room is quiet. Uh, this is not happy, clappy, uh, seeker-sensitive stuff, is it? Uh, I bet if we all took out our Bibles and looked at our Bibles, probably none of us have have verses 9 through 18 highlighted. Uh, the, these are not the ones above your mantle, right? These are not the ones your mom crocheted on a pillow. Uh, in the words of Dale Carnegie back in the 40s and 50s, this is not, Paul, this is not the way to win friends and influence people. Uh, this is a, re, a real downer. But he's making his case that everyone is a sinner. Everyone has rejected God. There is no one who has done good with purely good motives. Even if you've done good, you've done it selfishly so that you might be seen, so that you might earn God's favor. And so ultimately, even those good works are tainted by bad, aren't they? No one seeks God. No one does good. And here's the solemn truth of this passage. Everyone, everyone is broken. So young people, that person that you date, that person that you end up marrying, that you at first think is a prince or princess or whatever that has hung the moon, has done everything right, your knight in shining armor, if you don't find out before your wedding day, you'll find out on your honeymoon or in the first year that guess what? This prince is a sinner too. There is no one perfect. There is there is no perfect child. You know, so there, we got a lot of babies over here. Uh, I've got an eight month old. He's starting to talk. I think based upon his jabbering, one of his fir- his first word will be dad. Dad. I mean, da da da. It's coming out, and I'm coaching him a little bit. It's going to be dad-dad, but guess what? If he follows suit like his brother and sister and like the rest of humanity, guess what will be his second or third word or something like that? No, mine, no, stop, me, and guess what? I won't have to teach him that. It will just mysteriously happen like it has for my other two children, like it has for all of us. I won't have to teach him that. Why? Because he has this condition called sin that Paul and the scriptures teach. No one is exempt from. There's no one exempt. No one does good. No one's perfect. No one seeks God. We all come tainted by sin. Your spouse will not be your savior. Your spouse, your children are a beautiful gift of God. God. If your child does not understand that they are a beautiful creation made in the image of God, guess what? They will not achieve what you want them to achieve. They will not be the people that God has made them to be. But guess what? If you don't know and your kids don't know that they are sinners bent on wrong, they will also not go uh, the right direction. Everyone. There's no person that you can marry. There's no child that you could have. There's no job that you could take. There's no coworkers you could work with. There's no boss you could have that isn't tainted by sin. So set your expectations right. And here's the thing too. That person that you marry, those, those kids that you raise, that boss that you work for, those people that you work with, guess what? Th- there's something they have to deal with too. And you know what that is? You. The fact that you're a sinner too. Image bearers of God, but all of us marred by sin. Not only is it universal, but secondly, in verses 13 through 18, we see the totality of sin. The totality of sin. look in... uh, Beginning of verse 13, it says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look at the way he starts in verse 13. What, part of the, what body part does he go to first? Their throat and then he goes to mouth. But then he ends the whole passage where? At their feet. And it's like he is saying, from head to toe, they're totally sinful. From their heads, from their mouths, all the way to their feet, they're going to run to misery. They're going to be in disharmony with other people. They are totally sinful. Mind, emotion, will, personally, psychologically, relationally, sociologically, everything about them is marred and, and tainted by sin. A couple of weeks ago I showed you the modern man's version to amazing grace. The modern man's version of amazing grace goes like this. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a stunted self-concept like me. I once was stressed out but now I'm empowered was visually challenged but now I see. That's not what Romans 3 says. <laughs> Romans 3 Romans 3 says open graves poisonous, dead, sinful from head to toe. Sometimes I've said before, the only thing wrong with the world is sin, but sin affects everything. The only thing wrong with the world is sin, but sin affects everything. Every part of you, every place that you go, every house you live in, every job you take, Sin is total. There's no part of you that's got the clean slate. It's not like there's one, there's one piece of your heart or there's one piece of your mind that's been untainted by sin. The teaching of the Bible and the teaching of the Protestant reformers emphasized, as Martin Luther studied Romans, <clears throat> the Protestant reformers <clears throat> 500 years ago emphasized this idea of total depravity, that from head to toe, Mind, emotion, will, we we are totally corrupt. Now, does that mean that we're as bad as we could be? No. Of course we could be worse. Of course we could behave worse. Of course our attitudes could be worse. But what the Protestant reformers and theologians mean when they talk about total depravity is they mean that every part of us is affected by this thing called sin. We are totally depraved. From head to toe, from mind to heart, to will. A lot of times you hear people say, follow your heart, just follow your heart. I know what people mean when they say that. But guess what? Your heart is as corrupt as your mind, is as corrupt as your will. So be careful following your own thoughts, following your own heart, right? The universality of sin, the totality of sin, finally, the ugliness of sin. And, And briefly here, As I've already alluded to it, look at these words that he uses, the ugliness of sin. You might say the ungodliness of sin, but how does he describe it? With death, with an open grave, with with venom, poison, curses, bitterness, bloodshed. Ruin and misery, this is the ugliness of sin. This is what happens when we're ruled and controlled by sin. It's ugly. John Stott, one commentator, has defined sin like this. He says, sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Pretty blunt, huh? The revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of self. Sin is total and it's ugly. That's why he describes it like this. Last week I showed you a news headline of a guy in Kentucky who scalped his wife. And when appearing before the judge, said, told the judge, I don't need a lecture. That's sin. That's ugly. That's obvious, right? Well, let me tell you about some sin that is a little bit cuter than that because all of us can recognize that sin. But there's other, there's many faces of sin, right? So during spring break, as a good dad, home with the kids for some extra time, I say, guys, we're gonna go do something fun. Dad's got a surprise for you. Load up in the car and here we go and we unload at Urban Air, which is this massive trampoline place that I never had when I was a kid, but we unload the car and we get in there and my five-year-old says, well, we've been here before. To which I said, you little sinner. Yeah. She is a cute little sinner. But guess what? That is still, still sin. Entitlement in my heart. I deserve this. God, where are you to serve me? There's many faces of sin and all of us are corrupted by it. So Paul gets in verse 19 and 20, he tells us the conclusion. The room's quiet now, it's heavy. And he gives the conclusion of this whole section in verses 19 and 20. He says this, in verse 19, he tells us the purpose. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, there's the purpose. Verse 19. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, some translations, the NIV of verse 19 says that the whole world may be silenced. Other translations said that all mouths might be closed. The New Living Translation says that you would stop making excuses. But in verse 19, he says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law. Why? Purpose. So that every mouth may be stopped And the whole world held accountable to God. So God has given us this law so that we would shut our mouths and quit making excuses, quit talking back, and just fall down on our knees and say, guilty. Guilty as charged. He goes on in verse 20 to give the reason, here's why, here's the reason. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So as Scott prayed earlier, what we tend to do is tend to take the law and make it a standard to make ourselves ourselves feel better about ourselves. Hey, I'm a good person. I'm better than so-and-so. I'm more honest than the other person I work with. I'm harder working. And we take the law and we make it this measuring stick. And the point of verse 20 says that the law was given so that we would know our sin. See, when I drive down Coit and I see a sign that says 45, I know, whoop, need to slow down. That's the law. And it shows me my sin. But that law, that sign has no power to free me of the sin. It has no power to get in my heart and make me not wanna speed or do something wrong. It simply shows me that I'm guilty. That's what the law does. It shows me that I'm guilty. It's not, the law is not a means of grace with God. The law is a sign of God's grace. So I've, he says, I, I've given you this law, I've given you these commands, that, not that you might feel self-righteous by them, so that you might know that you're a sinner and then you might shut your mouth and now be in a place to receive the grace of God. So here's the application. The application is, by grace, receive Jesus. And by grace... Praise Jesus. So he spent three chapters here showing us that we're all sinners so that we would all shut our mouths and plead to him, the God of heaven, the judge of all the earth, guilty. I'm guilty. There's an old hymn called The Rock of Ages. Maybe you sang it. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. When you come to Jesus, you don't bring your religious works. You don't bring your tradition. You don't bring your good deeds. You bring nothing. And simply to the cross, I cling. The law was given so that we would shut our mouths, fall down, and say, guilty. And now we're in a place to receive his grace. Simply to the cross, I cling. And the purpose of shutting our mouths is not to keep our mouths shut, but to shut our mouths so that that we can then open our mouths to do what? To praise the God of grace, to give him all the credit for it. So that's what we're gonna do in just a minute is we're gonna stand back up and we're gonna open our mouths, not with excuses, not with self-righteousness, but in praise to God because we, The only thing we have brought to this deal is our sin. And God has brought the grace. God has brought the salvation. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. But you may be here this morning and you've thought all along as a church attender, as a good, moral, Texan, American, conservative person, that you're there for a Christian, And you have mistaken, you have mistaken moralism for a relationship with Jesus. And Paul's point here is just fall down and say guilty. Fall down and say guilty. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Would you bow your heads with me? And I want to ask you this morning, Have you trusted Jesus or have you just been kind of a good person? Have you brought your resume or have you just fallen on your knees and said, guilty, guilty God, now I receive Jesus, I receive your grace in Jesus. I want you to search your heart and maybe the Holy Spirit through this message and through his, the word of God, has said, yeah, you have a false sense of hope. You have a false sense of security because you're trusting in your good works, you're trusting in your morality rather than the blood of Jesus. And I want to invite you right now, just silently, wherever you are, just to say, Jesus, thank you. I'm guilty. And I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. Just say that silently to Jesus right where you are. If you've discovered this morning good news, if you've discovered the gospel of grace, I'd love for you to let somebody know that. I'd love for you to tell me. I'd love for you to... Send me a message on Facebook or email me or whatever. Come up and talk to me afterwards. I was trusting in my goodness rather than the grace of Jesus. But now he has opened my eyes. For those of us that have known Jesus for some time, I invite you to stand up and sing with me. Stand up right now and sing. The law shuts our mouths so that we can fall down guilty, so that we can then open our mouths and praise God because of his grace. Let's praise him now.